Good morning. Please pray with me. Father, we come to your word to hear from you, and so we pray that you would speak, that you would fill us with the wisdom that can only come from, from you and from your words. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see as we come to worship you. We pray these things in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. If you would turn with me back to the book of Colossians. And I just want to make a few observations here. I've been looking at Colossians, and uh, perhaps we'll do this next. But today, it's just an introduction to the Psalms. And so the observations I want to make, many of you may have heard before. Um, but sometimes hearing, we don't always hear. And so look in Colossians chapter 3. And I want to read, starting in verse 12. And so, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So looking at verse 16, what you immediately can notice is that he's, he's, he's telling us that the word of Christ is to dwell in us, is to richly dwell in us, but the how that this comes to be is a little bit odd. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Usually when, when we're hearing a, a command, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, you would think that the command is to intake, not to expel. He says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, and, and the mechanism by which you do that is teach and admonish one another in all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your heart to God. So as, as we proclaim in our mouths, as we sing together psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, the word of Christ is richly dwelling within us. We both hear it and we take it upon our lips but if you would turn back to Colossians chapter 1, and we're not going to go through the whole structure of Colossians, but just, just to bring this to the forefront, this is present within the purpose of Paul in this short epistle. So, reading, uh, reading we'll start in verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up all that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship bestowed from God bestowed on me for your benefit that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God that is the mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations but has now been manifested to his saints to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of his glory of this mystery 
among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, and we proclaim him, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. So Paul's purpose is to present every man perfect. It's that same word that we found in James, to present them mature to the end. And he says that we're going to do this proclaiming him, and then he uses those same three words we just heard in chapter 3, but in reverse order. So in chapter 3, he says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. In chapter 1, he says, We proclaim him admonishing, teaching with all wisdom. So admonishing, teaching, wisdom. They're inverted, and it gives you some structure to this book, which is about the wisdom of God. And so how that wisdom of God came and has opened up the door and the Gentiles are brought into his people and this mystery has now been revealed in Christ so that we, we know the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that are hidden with Christ. So I'm not going to explain the whole structure here, but I, I just want you to see that this is germane to the very essence of his epistle and it's about the Gentiles. So speaking then to these Gentiles as they're added into the church, he says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. And that word that dwells within you, it comes about in wisdom by teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So these Gentiles are added, and they're added, and they're commanded, sing to one another. Sing before the Lord, sing to one another, and the word of Christ will richly dwell within you. So our purpose for today is twofold. We're going to go back to the beginning of the Psalter and look at Psalms 1 and 2. And I wanted to introduce it this way to re-encourage us to that, that task of singing these songs. Because there's value. This, this is God's word, and it says the word of Christ will dwell in you this way. And so we're going to think about that as we look at the introduction to the Psalms in Psalm 1 and 2. So that's one part of our purpose. The other part is to introduce then Psalms and how they lead to thanksgiving. You'll notice here in, in Colossians chapter 3 that the end effect of this, in which the word of Christ richly dwells within you, you're teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, the way that that occurs physically, you sing with thankfulness in your hearts. All of these songs then should cause us to well up with a song of thankfulness to God. So that's the end result of this singing. God's word dwells richly within us, and we, in singing it, are made to be thankful. Our hearts are bent towards thankfulness. So if you would now turn to the first psalm. And Psalms 1 and 2... If you don't know many of the psalms by heart, Psalms 1 and 2 may, may be the ones that we're very familiar with. They're, they're not the ones that are as difficult. We'll get to those as, as we go along, but they're not as difficult for us to think about or sing. They, they're somewhat familiar territory. But my hope is to, to help uncover a little bit how, how they introduce what we should be thinking about and meditating on as we sing these songs that God has given us and how they uncover deeper truths within each other. So Psalms 1 and 2 
can be, as I, as I wrote in the, the note that went out yesterday, they can, be, they can be read and sung and prayed separately or together. So they're a composition that in the arrangement of the Psalter are pushed together and structurally, you can look at them both separately or together. So they have their own internal structure, but then they speak to one another. And as we meditate on those, as we sing them, those words come to mind and there's new, there's new insights and wisdom that God breathes into us. And at, at least for me, I can give you with some testimony that, that doing that, those words then pop into your head through the day and, and in, in ways that you don't expect. So I'll, I'll comment on that just a little bit, but I want to read the, through the, the two psalms together, so hear them as a unit, and then, then we'll talk about them separately and how they speak to one another. So the, Psalm 1, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of Yahweh, and his law, on his law he meditates day and night. He'll be like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. But the wicked, not so. They're like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Why are the nations in an uproar, and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his, his Christ. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain, and I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance the very ends of the earth as your possessions, and you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like a potsherd. Now therefore, O king, sh show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship Yahweh with fear and exult with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he become angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. So notice immediately that Psalm 1 we have this statement, how blessed is this man, and that's how the second psalm also ends. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the way of the wicked. How blessed is the man who does the opposite, who takes refuge in, in Yahweh. Flip over, just keep your finger there, and flip to Psalm 41. This is the end of book one. And you'll see this refrain again. Psalm 41, verse 1, how blessed, this is the same word for blessed, it's the word, the, the, the plural masculine word that uh, gets translated in the singular is asher. How blessed, how many are the blessings of he who considers the helpless. And then again at the end, the very end, there's this, there's this refrain. It's a different word. This is the Barak word for blessed, but nonetheless, these same ideas in mind. Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. This idea of who is the blessed man 
It begins and ends the first book, but it also begins and ends the entire Psalter. Who is this blessed man? What does he do? So flip one more time to Psalm 144. You may say that's not the end of the Psalter. But the last six Psalms are an exclamation of praise. So you see all of this pondering, this meditating on the blessing of God. And by the end of the Psalter, from 145 to 150, it gives way to just praise, unimpeded by anything else. But just before that, we have this this ending, 144 verse 15, the same word for blessed Esher. How blessed are the people who are so situated. How blessed are the people whose God is Yahweh. So that's the subject of the Psalms. We begin and we end that way, and the result is an explanation, an exaltation of praise. How blessed are these people? Who is blessed? The man who does not walk in the counsel of the, of the wicked, who does not stand in the way of sinners, who does not sit in the seat of scoffers. That man is blessed. But the whole book of songs that we read is dedicated to this understanding. So Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 that describe this blessing. It gets worked out throughout the Psalter so that when that blessing that we read about here, when it hits real everyday life, and it doesn't feel like a blessing, and it doesn't look like a blessing right now, the rest of those psalms help us grapple with that so that we take and we sing on our lips the songs to God that, that lament the fact that we don't, we don't see the fullness of that blessing immediately. And in so doing, God changes us. He changes our response so that by the time we get to the end and these psalms are part of us, we can sing the end in in truth, not having hidden away some part of our lives and and demean God's blessing so that that we've made it less than what it is. Instead, having grappled with, with really the suffering and the anguish that goes on, in the midst of our lives as God is bringing us to this maturity, only then, at the end, can we sing with honesty the praise that comes at the end of the Psalter. So keep that in mind, and and I I want to work then through the first psalm uh, just briefly, and and then the second psalm, and then, then we'll look at them together. So the words that we know well, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, who does not stand in the way of sinners, who does not sit in the seat of scoffers. It's easy to recognize a, a, a pattern in these verses in which you're first walking, you're walking in the way of the wicked and then standing and then sitting. But just for a minute, remember we're, we're talking now to the righteous man. So we're not describing yet what this wickedness is, just how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. So walking in the counsel of the, of the wicked, you start off hearing the advice that comes from the wicked and, and, and heeding it to some degree. doesn't mean completely, but as you dabble in the counsel of the wicked, that then can give way into standing in the path of sinners. And what does this look like? It looks like forming our path, our way around what the wicked say. Until finally the the end of these couplets is you sit in the seat of scoffers. And I think the progression is is this, that you walk first, you're walking in their counsel, so you heed it, but you are not one of them yet. 
but by the end you're sitting in the seat of scoffers. That means that you are now giving voice to the very lies, the wicked counsel. You, you're part of the counsel so that you scoff at the wicked or, or as, as Paul says, not only do you do these things, but you give hearty approval to those who do likewise. You've, you've sat down then and become part of the judgment council of the wicked. And so this is the danger of the progression from first walking, listening to the counsel of the wicked. And it, we don't know yet what that is. And so we have to, to look at the structure of the psalm in order to understand a little bit about, about how to stay away from that. So just notice then that this psalm, you can or, organize it either as pairs of couplets or in a chiastic fashion. So the end of the psalm, we come back to this, the, the, the way of the wicked. So verses 5 and 6 then correspond to verse 1. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So on the outside of this song, we see then this truth. Don't walk in the way of the wicked, and, and the why don't walk in the way of the wicked, because we know what the end is. The wicked will not stand in judgment. They will, they will not be able to stand in the assembly, in the council of the righteous. And so there's, there's this complete separation in which you can't dabble on the one side and then come stand in the assembly of the righteous in the congregation of God's people because Yahweh knows. He knows the way of the righteous. He knows the way of the wicked, and the way of the wicked is death. But within this, and this is simple. This is not difficult to understand. We then get an, the, the first glimpse of what the psalmist is calling us to as righteous people. His delight is in the law of Yahweh. So the contrast is don't walk, don't stand, don't sit on the counsel of the wicked. But the opposite of that is take your delight in the Torah of Yahweh. Those don't at first seem to be opposites. But if you look down to verse 4, we see the corresponding verse in our, in our structure. So... If verse 1 goes with verse 5 and 6, then verse 2, his delight is in Yah, the, the, the law of Yahweh, and on his law he meditates day and night. You see in verse 4, the wicked are not so. So this is, this is the way of the wicked. They have no delight in the law, in the Torah of Yahweh. And because they have no delight in the Torah of Yahweh, they have no glory, they have no weight. They're like an empty husk that the Spirit comes and blows away. As soon as the wind comes, then they disappear. They're chaff in the, in the wind. But the righteous, their delight is in the law of Yahweh, and on his law he meditates day and night. So we sing these songs. We're singing an expression of faith. This is true. This is true of the righteous, and it makes you grapple. Well, do I fall in this category? Is my delight in the law of Yahweh, and on this law do I meditate day and night? The Psalter is, is set up for us in five books, and most people think that, that that's on purpose, so that those five books mimic, they mirror the five books of the Torah. 
So we're, we're given Genesis through Deuteronomy, the, the Torah, the law of God is given. And then in poetic form, it's given to us again in these songs that we memorize and we sing back. So this is our response. And so when we read these words, in his law, he meditates. It's both thinking backwards to Genesis through Deuteronomy, to the whole of God's word, but then even more specifically to the Psalms that are coming, the ones that should fill our mind and and our lips. And, and he uses this word, on his law he meditates. It's not just the idea of silent pondering. The, the word has uh, the connotation of utterance. So the other times that it's translated, it's translated on the negative side as devising, hatching plans, or muttering, or uttering, or murmuring, so that you get this idea that that the law of God is on your lips, and it, it keeps coming out of them. Not, not silently, may, maybe softly. You lie in your bed, and you're speaking to yourself. And if you've ever spent a lot of time memorizing something, or, or you, you've got that song stuck in your head, what happens? It, it comes out of your lips. You get up, and you can't get rid of it. You lie down, it doesn't go away. I had some trouble in my life... Uh, I don't remember, maybe seven years ago. And I decided that I was going to memorize the Psalms. So I, I set about this task with, you know, great oomph and, and got to it. So some of them I, I know well. Many have passed by the wayside. Unfortunately, and now I'm preaching to myself, I, I gave up at Psalm 100. But what I found is even in those that I knew quite well, they would, they would begin coming up at all different times of the day. The words start popping out of your mouth, you make associations, and, and there's new life in the way that God has said things. So that somebody, somebody gives a sentence, at the very end of the sentence, the first thing that comes out of your mouth is a, is a word from the Psalms. And it makes you think about what God is doing in all of life. And so one of the things I want to encourage you to is the, the, the first psalm, it will change how you reflect on all the rest of them. So if you're to memorize one, memorize this first psalm. And you'll see it reoccurring, that the ideas of what God is calling us to as righteous people, again and again and again through the psalms, as the psalmists wrestle with this question of, our, all right, this is what God says a righteous person is. And, and you can see it even in the, the, the next four psalms, so three, four, five, and six. What does the righteous man do? He delights in the law of God, and, and he meditates on that law. He murmurs it, utters it day and night. Well, Psalm 3, 4, 5, and 6, they're psalms of, uh, they're, they're questions where the psalmist is wrestling with adversaries, but their specific context is first at, in the morning, then at night, then in the morning again, and then at night again. And so he's thinking about it as he gets up and as he goes to bed, all right, how how is God bringing these things to pass when I've got adversaries all around me? Because the promise is, if your delight is in the law of God, the law of Yahweh, in the Torah of Yahweh, if you, if you meditate on that day and night, then this is what's true. You'll be like a tree planted by streams of water, yielding fruit in its season. Your leaf won't wither, and in all that you do, you'll prosper. Now, there's a lot to wrestle with here. If you hear these words and believe them. And don't, 
don't try to mitigate them or, or, or downplay them. God says you'll be like a tree planted by streams of water, and everything you do will prosper. Well, think about the righteous men of the Bible. Did everything they do prosper? Well, there's a lot to wrestle with there. David, who is the author of the, the almost all, probably all of the Psalms in the first book, he has to wrestle with this. And so he's wrestling with adversaries, both uh, outside, inside, and himself. So in Psalm 3, the, the inscription is a psalm of David when he fled, fled from Absalom, his son. So he's got, he's got this trouble, and it's trouble coming from his own house. He's got enemies within his own house, and by the time you get to Psalm 32, you begin to realize that, that there's an enemy even closer, himself. And yet, as you move along this path of wrestling with these enemies outside, further out, the, the enemies of God, and, and even our own sin, the end result is, is a, the dawning of an understanding of what God is calling us to and, and thankfulness because of how he does it. So we'll look at that uh, briefly in just a minute. But the inside, so, so the, the central structure of the chiasm in Psalm 1, he'll be like a tree planted by streams of water, and everything that he does, he prospers. But the very inside is that this tree, it will yield fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. So as we trust God, and we dedicate ourselves to delighting in his word, to singing the songs that he gave us to put on our lips, this is what will happen. We'll be like a tree that have channels of water to it constantly. That water is, is his word, and so the result is that the leaf never, never withers. It's not like Texas where there's a five-month drought and everything dies unless you're willing to pay a $1,000 water bill. The water's there, and the leaf does not wither, and the fruit comes in its season. And this, as you, as you read and meditate on the whole of God's Word, this image, of course, it doesn't begin and end in Psalm 1. This is a song that makes us think about what God is doing. Israel is to be like a tree planted firmly by streams of water. So we see that image come to bear in Jeremiah 17 and Ezekiel 17 that we read where the people, they were planted and yet another eagle picked them up and planted them in another place, and God was going to tear them down. We see it come to fruition then at the end of the book of Ezekiel, in chapter 47, where the water flows out of the new restored temple, and it becomes channels where there's a tree on both sides that, that says exactly these things. Its leaves do not wither, therefore the healing of the nations and its fruit is, is there. Twelve kinds built on both sides of the stream. So we see that this is not just about us personally, but about what God is doing in us as individuals and in the whole of his people. He's making them like a tree firmly planted with a continual stream of water so that there's, there's no season of dryness, of, of parchment where the, the leaves wither away. And of course you know that, that this, is, this is the picture that that we see by the time we get to the end of the book of Revelation, it's that same one. The tree is planted. God's people are made secure. They're established. His church is built. His word is proclaimed, and the kings come streaming into it. And if you read this psalm and meditate on it, how is God doing that? He's doing it as we delight 
in His law. He's feeding us together as we sing to one another. As Paul says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness. He's filling us up with that wisdom so that we sing it and we listen to each other sing it and it starts penetrating our, our lives and it yields fruit. So I, we can spend a lot of time on this, but I, I want to look at how Psalm 2 gives life, how, how they're coupled together and we can begin to think of then about the richness of of what God promises. So Psalm 2, it has a, a similar structure. But the first thing that you'll notice is that the first psalm, you're contrasting the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked, and it's very black and white. Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And yet we, we don't yet know, based on that first song, what the wicked are doing. We know they don't delight in, in Yahweh's law, but we don't know what they're saying, what their counsel is. And so Psalm 2 immediately answers that question. Why are the nations in a rage? And the peoples... This is the, the same word in, in uh, the first psalm that's translated meditate, that I told you means murmur or utter or speak. Here it's translated devising a vain thing. So... so what do they mutter to themselves when they get up in the morning and when they go to bed at night? They're muttering, how do we get out of these bonds? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together. You should hear the refrain of the same kind of language. What is the counsel of the wicked that you ought not to walk in? It's this. They're getting together and they're counseling against Yahweh and against His anointed one, the Messiah, and they say, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Well, what does that mean in Psalm 1? The righteous one, his delight is in the law of Yahweh. That law is like a fetter, it's a cord that binds his people. But for those that are righteous, they delight in it. It's not, it's not an enslavement, it's a wonderful thing to sit under the instruction of the God who made the heavens and the earth, the one who, who saves us and bought us. But the rulers, the wicked... They counsel together, and their goal is to take down God's rule, to take away the fetters and the cords that bind us, the rule that, of law that God gives. And so they, they powwow together, they sit in judgment, they scoff at all those who are willing to subject themselves to the law of God, and their scoff is one that we hear today. Who would do that? What kind of fools would sit under this subjugation? Free yourselves. In verse 4, the psalmist is showing us that there is another counsel. He who sits in the heavens laughs, and Yahweh scoffs at them. So notice then the parallel to Psalm 1. There is a way of the wicked. They take counsel together. They're counseling against Yahweh and against his anointed but Yahweh has his own counsel, and he's sitting down in the heavens, and in his counsel, he's mocking them. He is the scoffer. He looks at them, and, and they're nothing. And so there's an encouragement to us in, in this, this black and white picture 
of whose side do you want to be on? Because Yahweh is sitting in the heavens laughing at these puny kings. And in the end, as he scoffs them, he too is going to speak. And he speaks to them in his anger. He terrifies them in his fury. And this is his message. As for me, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill, and I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. It's not the same word, but it's, it's this idea then of the, the settlement, the statement, the law of Yahweh. I'm going to tell it, and this is it. I have planted my king on my holy hill, on Mount Zion. The one who sits in heaven doesn't stay in heaven. He sends and he sets his king very much on earth, on Zion, my holy hill. And he's going to say then, you are my son today, I have begotten you. Ask of me and I'll give you the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. And so we see then the, the third part, the, this psalm is, is parallel and at the beginning and the end they go together. And they're, they're talking then about the way and the response of the wicked, but internally, in, in verses... In verses 4 through 9, we see then God's response. First, first God in the heavens, and then Yahweh sitting on the throne on earth. I'll tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me, and I'll surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You'll break them with a rod of iron. You'll shatter them like earthenware. It should make us think then about what's happening in Psalm 1. Remember, the wicked are like chaff. The spirit wind comes and he blows them away. Here now, God's, God's anointed, the Messiah, the Christ, comes. He's planted like a tree beside channels of water. And all that he does, he prospers. And the result is God gives him authority. And he breaks them with a rod of iron and he crushes them into a million pieces so that the wicked are brought to nothing. None of this is new to us. This is... We know this story. The struggle is, where do we fit in it? We can come to the end. So, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together. Well, what's the message to the rulers? If we find ourselves in the position of the kings and the rulers of the earth, having begun to walk in the way of the wicked, he has a message for us. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship Yahweh with fear and exult with trembling. So humble yourselves. If we find ourselves in the position of walking in the counsel of the wicked, of standing in the way of sinners, of sitting in the seat of scoffers, we are those kings who have counseled together against Yahweh and is anointed to throw his bonds apart. And he's, he has this message. Show discernment. Be wise. Humble yourself now. Kiss the son lest he be angry at you and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. So the response is, kiss the son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way. And you, you should hear the same, the same words that ended Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. There's two ways. And here at the end, we have how God is bringing, how God is bringing his justice to the earth. So all, all, all through history, we see this struggle. We see it in Job. We, we see it in the narratives of Genesis. This struggle of, well, is God going to keep his promise to the righteous? And here we see that God is bringing it to fruition through his anointed. He's planted him on earth. And on earth, he's going to dispense justice. And he will bring then to an end, to death, 
the way of the wicked. And so he says, while there's a moment, kiss the sun, exult, exult with trembling for his wrath may soon be kindled. And if you go through the work of taking these psalms and, and listening to them, read them side by side, sing them with the, the songs that come, what you hear is these same phrases, these same ideas coming back and back again so that a song that we're uncomfortable with, that, that we've learned to sing here is Psalm 6. In Psalm 6, he says, O Yahweh, don't rebuke me in your anger or chasten me in your wrath. Well, if we've heard and believed the message of the first two songs, we know that that wrath may quickly come. It may be kindled at any moment. And so we have then this warning, be wise, be warned, kiss the sun lest he be angry with you. And so the psalmist is doing just that. David's doing that. He's bowing down before God and he's saying, oh God, don't be angry with me. Don't chasten me in your wrath. Stay your hand. And he's repenting. And you can, see, you can see that exchange again and again as you work your way through, through these songs. But let's think for a minute. I've commented along the way structurally how the psalms go together, how you see some of the language um, being fed from one to the other so that when we think in Psalm 1 and, and, and we're honest, well, who is this righteous man that, that delights in, in the law of Yahweh? And we find that we come short, that David came short, that the wisest man came short, that, that if you think about Moses, he was, said he was, he was the most, uh, what's the word? Humble, yeah, in all, all the earth. Still, he came short. His wrath burst out, and he was not allowed to enter. And so this then you begin to reread Psalm 1. This song is a song about Jesus, about the anointed one. The same subject as Psalm 2. So how blessed is this man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the path of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of Yahweh? Well, this is Jesus. He delights in the Torah of Yahweh. So when you see Jesus through, through the Gospels, what's he quoting? He's quoting the Psalms. He quotes the Psalms more than any other book. He's singing as he, as he walks his way to the cross. And he too is wrestling. So that on the, on the cross, as he speaks to God, what does he cry out? He cries out the lament of Psalm 22. It's on his lips. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so what happens as we, we take and read and meditate and sing these kinds of songs we're free then to lament, to realize that the fullness of what God has promised is still in process. God is doing it. Or as the author of the Hebrew says, you don't yet see all of this when he's thinking about Psalm 8, but you do see Jesus made a little lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor. So we see him having walked on before. And what happens is if we then read Psalm 1 back into Psalm 2, we can read ourselves in, in both of them. Because although we fall short, we are, we are the ones who, by God's grace, heed the warning and humble ourselves before him. We kiss the sun, we do homage, and then we, we, have, we have this command, exult. 
exult with trembling because we are now one with Jesus. In Psalm 2, uh, we don't have time to walk through all of the New Testament references, but they should sound familiar, familiar to us. The rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against His anointed. This is quoted in Acts chapter 4, and Luke uses it to show us that, that Herod, that Pontius Pilate are are those rulers. Not the only ones, but we see Jesus coming to his death. They've taken counsel against Yahweh and is against his anointed. And so we ought to take heart because we've seen, we've seen Psalm 2, which seemed impossible, come through the other side where Jesus is put to death. And then the, in, in the next section in which he says, you are my son today, I have begotten you. We, we hear the reverberations in, in Jesus' baptism. But by the time we get to Acts chapter 13, if you would turn there with me. Keep your finger in Psalm 2. And we'll read verse 30. But God raised him, Jesus, from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people, and we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children, and that he raised up Jesus as it is written in the second psalm. Some translations will have the first psalm, because remember they could be either together or separate. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And so here in, in the book of Acts, Luke interprets Psalm 2 for us, and he says, This is fulfilled. God planted him like a tree, firmly established by channels of water, when he established him on Mount Sinai at his resurrection. So there's a first establishment in, in the baptism. God opens up the heavens, and he says, You are my beloved son. But then there's a, a fullness when Jesus is resurrected after death, up to the right hand of God, and then God says, You are my son, the king. Today I have begotten you. Turn to Revelation chapter 2. So one, one more reference. Revelation chapter 2, and in the message to Thyatira, we'll read in verse 25. He says, nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. And he who overcomes, he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so John tells us, that Psalm 2 is also written about us. Just the way that we can read Psalm 1 and, and we know it's written to us, for us, about us, that if we take our delight in the law of the Lord and we have to wrestle with what that means, Psalm 2 also is about us. Because in Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, we have been baptized with Him and brought into Him. So that the promise of chapter two or Psalm 2, verse 9 
You shall break them with a rod of iron and shatter them like earthenware. Now that authority is given to his people. In Revelation 2, verse 27. And that lends a whole new light on singing this song. It's a song of David when the kings were anointed. But it, and most poignantly, it's a song about Jesus. But it's about us also with Jesus. And so when God says, when Yahweh speaks, and he says, ask of me, and I'll surely give the nations your inheritance. And Psalm 3 says, oh, Yahweh, how many are my adversaries against me? It's a response. This is a promise. All of these enemies have gathered together against, against God and against his anointed. And so David cries out, even when it's his own son, oh, Yahweh, how many adversaries have gathered together against me? And he's responding to this promise, ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. So it's written to David and it's written to us. And what, what happens as you meditate on these, on these songs, as you murmur them, what you find is a truth that we already knew. That the throne of David and the throne of God become one by the end of his word, but we are brought into it. And so as we wrestle and struggle, these songs are songs for us in and through and with Christ, so that the words of Christ, which should richly dwell within us as we sing them, they do just that. We sing and they fill us up. And one of the things I've, I've come to, to grapple with is we need, we need to learn how to talk with God. And the Psalms, they give us the language to do that, in language that we wouldn't appropriate for ourselves. And yet when trouble comes and we have a song ready on our lips, oh Lord, chasten me not in your wrath, rebuke me not in your anger, because I know, I know who the Son is, and I know that his wrath is quickly kindled. And so they help us to wrestle with God, and the end result of that, so what we're going to do in the next couple of weeks is, is look at the the effects, what, what, what it means to be thankful in the Psalms. We have to start here with an understanding of God's promises, but not an understanding of God's promises that somehow puts them so far removed that, that they're not real, as if they're way off in heaven, apart from us, apart from now, and so we can voice them and we can sing praise, but, but what can happen is that we, we end up on either one of two sides of a, a spectrum where we begin diminishing what it means to have the blessing of God. So that looks like less than what it really is. So that, that's one way of grappling with God's promises where it seems like they fall short. We can say, well, that maybe what seems like is up here is really down here. So when God says, ask of me, or when Jesus says, you have now the ear of the Father, we can make that into a promise that's meaningless. And that's one way where, where we fall short, that the songs of Christ will help us. Because it's not outside of God's sovereign purview, our lives that seem to fall short. It's, it's right juxtaposed within it that we're going to struggle. And we can see in Jesus that that, that struggle, well, that's part of the way in which he was brought and given this anointing, so that at the resurrection, God says, today I've begotten you. You are my son, ask of me. 
And so God is doing the same thing in us. The other way that we, we can tend to, to fall, either by diminishing God's promises or by lying to ourselves about what's going on around us. And so you just don't think about it. Don't, don't think about the, the struggle until all of a sudden one day it will burst out in anger or in, in apostasy when we, we finally say, you know what, none of this is real at all. And you can see that in children whose lives are not very difficult, so that there's not necessarily a lot of the struggle that you see in these psalms. And then when, when that adversity hits them in the face, then what, what do they do? If you don't know the songs, if you don't know the struggle that, that maybe is not yours right now, then we don't have the language or the thoughts to come to God and to lay it before Him and say, this is what you said. This is what you promised, and to believe it wholeheartedly. And when we believe wholeheartedly, and yet we can st still come to God with our trouble and, and call on Him and, and demand, as the psalmist do, that He listens, then, and only then, do we see the fullness of what God is doing, and we can issue forth thanksgiving in fullness from the heart. Without denying the trouble, without denying the, the anguish or the pain, even brought by ourselves or our own children, but then, when we see what God is doing and the end that He's bringing through it, then we're filled with thankfulness. And by the end of the Psalms, that thankfulness gives way to the praise that we want to sing. All right, if you would, bow with me. Let's, let's pray. Come before God on high. Father, we thank You. We thank You that You have given us these songs to sing, to pray before you. We thank you that you hear them. And Lord, we thank you that, that we have a Savior, such a Savior, who has been made like us. He knows our weaknesses, and we can come to him, and, and we come for mercy and help in time of need. And we thank you for the promise that you'll hear us. And Lord, we pray that you would make your word richly dwell within us, that you would have us with a ready word on our lips, with songs to sing to one another that, yes, are filled with anguish, but also in the end have thanksgiving and joy because finally we can see what you're doing. Lord, we, we want to be those people that are known for and characterized by your word. Father, we pray these things in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.